Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello again, good friends. Good to see you. And welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, where we try to help keep you up to date on all the big issues on the table in our nation's capital. And one of the biggest ones still, now one year later, is Russia's war against Ukraine. In a dramatic move, President Biden traveled to inside Ukraine last week, meeting President Zelensky in Kyiv in a show of solidarity and reaffirming America's commitment to Ukraine. But back here at home, things are somewhat uncertain, with several leading Republicans either actually siding with Putin or arguing that we shouldn't give any more money or weapons to Ukraine. So where do we stand on Ukraine? What's the story on the ground there today? And how long does it look like this war could drag on? Well, as you know from the beginning, we have followed the war in Ukraine with our own foreign policy expert, national security analyst, and former head of the Plowshares Fund, Joe Sirincioni. Today, having just marked the first anniversary of the war, we welcome Joe Sirincioni back for an update. Joe Sirincioni, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to, to, to talk to you again. Thank you very much, Bill. It's always great to be here. So we saw last week uh, President Biden a very dramatic visit to Kiev, uh, kept in top secrecy until he arrived there and said hello to President uh, Zelensky. How important was that visit, Joe? Oh, it was a major uh step for Biden, for Ukraine, for U.S. support for, for Ukraine. You know, German um, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has a phrase that he coined a year ago called Zeitenwende, means turning point. And he mm -hmm. meant about a turning point in Germany's defense policies because of Putin's invasion. I think we may look back at this trip by Biden to Kiev as a Zeitenwende, a turning point, where Biden is just all in. He is fully committed in, in, in putting his personal prestige on the line, making the most dramatic visit to a war zone I think any president has, has done since Abraham Lincoln visited mm -hmm. a few miles from me out at Fort Stevens during the Civil War. I mean, that's that's how far you have to go back to see something like this. And I think it's it's both a demonstration of his, his personal commitment, the U.S. commitment, and his commitment to a Ukrainian victory, to Ukraine winning this war, not just fighting to a stalemate. Uh, and clearly, in his remarks that day, he made, uh, you know, he, he stated... Um, that he stands with Ukraine, and Ukraine still stands one year later. Here's the president. One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kyiv, perhaps even the end of Ukraine. You know, one year later, Kyiv stands, and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. In fact, Joe, have we seen such 
um, unanimity or togetherness in terms of Western Europe since World War II? Uh, no, I don't think we have. You know, you can think of the many conflicts we've been engaged in, whether it's Afghanistan, which had a, a brief moment of such unity when the whole world was with us in responding to the terrorist attacks of, of 9-11. But, but then that quickly faded as the U.S. Um, operation turned into an occupation. Mm -hmm. The invasion of Iraq a year later was incredibly divisive. Vietnam, uh, even Korea, going back even further, divisive conflicts. You know, NATO is, is stronger than ever, larger than ever, more unified than ever. And you also saw that at the Munich Security Conference a week ago, where you were support for Ukraine and the solidarity among the Western leaders was unlike anything we've seen in a very, very long time. So, in fact, um, Putin <laughs> achieved just the opposite of what he intended to achieve, didn't he? Absolutely. He wanted to divide NATO. He he united it. He wanted to weaken Western resolve. He, he strengthened it. He wanted to split the U.S. off from Europe. He's brought them closer than ever. And of course, he's in, inspired a, a Ukrainian nationalism that was there, but not mm -hmm. manifest in the way it is now. And Putin is learning this essential lesson of the 20th and now 21st century, never underestimate the power of nationalism. That's what you're seeing Ukraine. Uh, it, it, well, that's what's fueling the Ukrainian resistance. And that is why this, this uh, country that mo most people had written off as, yeah. as, you know, is now fighting to a, a standstill, and I would say winning this war against a, a superior, better resourced uh, opponent. So uh, let me ask you about that. This, uh, February 24, the first anniversary, um, I saw this week uh, the, the stats that uh, Russia today controls about 18 percent of mm -hmm. Ukraine territory. A year ago, before the war, they controlled 7 percent on the eastern side. Last March, right after things started, they, have, they got up to 27 percent. What is your read of where we are today, where Ukraine is today, one year later? Mm -hmm. I think there are three views of the conflict and the dominant one, the one that's in the blob, the U.S. foreign policy establishment, is that we're heading for a stalemate or a frozen conflict and that neither side is likely to pre prevail. There is a minority view that Russia will prevail. This is actually Putin's view that they can just overwhelm the Russian resistance, outla I mean, the Ukrainian resistance, mm -hmm. outlast uh, the West and, and succeeding splitting the West in part by fears of, say, nuclear war if the war goes on for too long. And then there's a third minority view, and I'm a member of that minority view, which is that Ukraine is going to win this war. And I don't mean just hold off the Russian onslaught, which is the current phase of the war we're in now. This is what's happening now. Russia is re in a new offensive. It is, it is human wave attacks, artillery barrages, uh, whatever it can muster. It's throwing at Ukraine right now. Ukraine is holding. And I believe in the spring, when the munitions that the West has promised now come to Ukraine, you're going to see that Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think it's quite possible that the Russian force could break 
They are sustaining mm. incredible casualties. Just yesterday, which was a quiet day in the war, uh, U- Ukraine reports 660 Russians killed. And over mm. the last few weeks, we've seen 800, 900, 1,000 a day killed. It reminds you of those hills the U.S. used to take in Vietnam at tremendous yeah. losses, only to give them up. That's what's happening to Russia now. I, I think they're getting weaker and Ukraine is getting stronger that's why I believe people like uh, retired General Mark Hurtland or retired General Ben Hodges, I agree with them that Ukraine has showed the superior leadership, the morale, the fighting spirit, the strategy. They can outlast Russia. They can win this war. So when President Zelensky said a couple of days ago that he sees that uh, Ukraine will win this war within the next year, do you think he, you think he's on target? I, I do. I do. And I'd be looking at this summer as being the decisive phase. And I'd be looking for more sort of skillful and imaginative Ukrainian maneuvers like one they conducted just yesterday. They blew up a Russian plane in Belarus. This Mm. is one of of their their Mm. AWACS planes, advanced early warning and control planes. There's only nine of them in the Russian Air Force. It was being used to to, uh, coordinate attacks on, on Ukraine, they blew it up with a cheap, a couple of cheap drones operated by Belarusians, the Ukrainians say, mm-hmm. inside Belarus. So I'd be, that, that kind <laughs> of warfare, that kind of cr- creativity, I think you're going to see more of that. So I, I, I would think what we're going to see is Ukraine continuing to take back the land like they did in September and October of last year. You're going to see that again this year. And then and only then will Putin get serious about negotiating a a settlement to this war. Do you think that for Ukraine to win, they need F-16s? And uh, why haven't we already given them to Ukraine? Well, this is part of Biden's controlled escalation of this war. He's been very careful to avoid what he calls, you know, the path to World War III. Obviously, no direct U.S. combat role in here, no direct NATO combat role. He does not want to get in that kind of conflict, which could quickly escalate out of control. So he's been measured in the the kinds of weapons he's been giving. I, I would say too measured too cautious. Mm-hmm. He could speed this up. But you can see that that the kinds of weapons that it, he ruled out in the first few months of the war, he's now giving. And I think we, we, we now, for example, we see the tanks and the armored personnel carriers coming. We see longer range rockets. I think we are going to see the ATACMs be sent to Ukraine. These are the weapons that can go in the existing launchers we gave them, the HIMAR launchers. But instead of going 40 miles, they can go 140 miles mm. and reach deeper into the, the, the supply lines, the logistic and command headquarters of Russia. The F-16s, I mean, Biden has a very good case here. These are complicated systems, takes a long time to train. But I think eventually we are going to be giving those kinds of fighter planes to Ukraine particularly if Ukraine shows success in holding off the Russian onslaught and starting its counteroffensive in the spring. Now, from what we know of Vladimir Putin, right, it's hard to believe that he would ever admit that he lost this war, right? I mean, so short of that or his being overthrown by his own generals or, uh, you know, inside of Russia— how does this thing end? Mm. Well, there I follow the guidance of Mike McFall, former ambassador to Moscow, and he uh-huh. said that, that you know, 
Putin's got a grip on power unlike anything we've seen since Stalin. You know, and right. even, there is no Politburo anymore. There is no collective leadership of any kind. He controls this. So it's very like, unlikely that he would be overthrown. And then, in fact, he can, you know, he'll continue. If he loses this war, he will still continue to control Russia. And in so doing, he can then spin uh, a lie to cover his loss the way, say, Donald mm. Trump spins the lie. Same thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't lose, you know, this was a great victory. I accomplished my objectives. I'm moving on to something else. So I think there is that kind of out for Putin. In mm. other words, a, a contrary to the claims of some, this is not an existential fight for Putin. It, losing this war does not threaten his existence or Russia's existence or even his grip on power. So he can l- lie his way uh, out of a defeat. And I think that defeat happens as the Russian forces are beaten back and are forced to retreat back, not just to the the, the lines of 2014 after their first invasion of Ukraine, but back to the Russian border. The question of Crimea is probably the most difficult one. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Where does Crimea end up here? And it's most difficult because it's many people see that it's very hard to imagine Ukraine militarily retaking Crimea. But I think that kind of underestimates the Ukrainian strategy, which is not to engage in frontal, costly assaults, but instead to surround and cut off a, a, a city until it's impossible to defend the way they did with Hershan, for example. Mm-hmm. They didn't mm-hmm. assault Hershan. They, they cut off the supply and logistical lines, and the Russians could no longer defend it, and they retreated. You could see that with Crimea. But even if it ends with that, with Crimea being still held by the Russians, but now subject to, say, negotiations on its final status, and they're out of Donbass region, that would be an enormous victory for Ukraine. And that could be the kind of settlement that that even the Ukrainians would be willing to accept. Uh, so it wouldn't have to be a complete Ukrainian victory, but it would have to be, you know, at least the Donbass territories reclaimed. So uh, we saw rumors last week of um, a ceasefire or peace talks. Um, what's the reality there? Is there any effort, serious effort underway? And by the way, I guess the related question is, what are the terms of a ceasefire? I mean, what what are they, what are they asking uh, Ukraine to give up? Well, I, I think you know, most military analysts would see a ceasefire right now as aiding Putin. That yeah. That's what yeah. he would like. To, you know, yeah, sure. it, it leaves his forces in place. It buys him the time he needs to, for example, mobilize more soldiers to serve as con- cannon fodder in his assaults, to uh, to try other ways to break the will of the West, to let the West lose interest in this conflict. So he would like a ceasefire, not quite now, because he still believes he can win, that he still believes that the next few weeks or months of his assaults can can win. So he's not ready to do a ceasefire yet. And so you got to be careful of, of those claims by some that they want to end Ukrainian suffering by by ending by calling a ceasefire and ending the conflict. That plays into Putin's hands, and that's why Zelensky doesn't want to talk about a ceasefire. He believes that his forces are on the verge of achieving some major successes, and I would agree with him. Uh, is China playing a role in this? You know, you got to give credit to the Biden administration for how they have handled this very delicately without 
too much insulting rhetoric to China. <laughs> Again, deploying intelligence creatively like they did a year ago when they warned the world and Ukraine that they were about to be invaded, even though many people didn't believe it. They again revealed intelligence over the last week or so that, that they thought that in China was inching up to providing arms mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. uh for Russia, that seems to have stayed the China hand so far. There's no evidence that any arms have been shipped to to Russia. Instead, they proposed a 12-point peace plan, not really a plan, more like a set of principles out there. I think China potentially could play a constructive role here because they don't want this war to continue. They don't want their biggest ally, Russia, to be continue to be weakened by this and for this to this war to continue to strengthen Western military unity. That's the last thing they want. So this war is a net negative for China, mm-hmm. which is why in their own national security interest, they may eventually help uh, broker a genuine ceasefire and the restoration, and this is one of their principles, the restoration of each country's national secu- uh, integrity and security, you could see them moving into a position where they would get, p- provide a face-saving way for Putin to uh, withdraw his forces from most, perhaps all of Ukraine. Uh, and Joe, what is the story? I believe the name of them are the Wagner troops? or Wagner, yeah. Yeah, forces which are like independent, right, uh, from the Russian military. Yeah. I mean, think and, of uh, Blackwater on steroids, the Blackwater contractor group that was in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. That's the Wagner group. It's led a, by? The paramilitary. Yeah, right. Uh, who just have the freedom to go in there and independent of the Russian forces, do whatever they want to do? It yes, seems. Yes. And, 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 and this is... Um, it's Pretty a scary. paramilitary organization. They pride themselves on being better than the Russian military. They've been claiming credit for some recent territorial uh, gains of um, uh, of Russia. But the latest reports are that they are, in fact, are not faring any better than the than the uh, u- other units of the Russian army. They've been leading the assault on Bakhmut, this small town of not really any strategic consequences. This is another example of the taking the hill in Vietnam. They've, mm. they, they've, they've been decimated in their assaults, even though they've been aided by um, the recruitment of about 30,000 prisoners from Russian prisons who were promised pay and benefits and a pardon if they would fight for six months, those prisoners have now stopped volunteering because they see that the mortality rate among the prisoners who have volunteered for combat is about 70%. And mm. they're just being used as cannon fodder. So the, the Wagner right. group is, 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 is losing some of the prestige that its its leader had hoped to um, to to gain by claiming to be a much better general than the actual general. Now, there's another overriding factor at work here in this war in Ukraine. Uh, it's one that the president, President Biden, again spoke to uh, last week. I believe he after he got uh, to Poland there in Warsaw and was talking about um, the issue which President Zelensky has talked about of war crimes. Here's President Biden. You know, this has been an extraordinary year in every sense. Extraordinary brutality from Russian forces and mercenaries. They've committed depravities, crimes against humanity, without shame or compunction. They've targeted civilians with death and destruction. 
used rape as a weapon of war, stolen Ukrainian children in an attempt to steal Ukraine's future, bombed train stations, maternity hospitals, schools, and orphanages. No one, no one can turn away their eyes from the atrocities Russia is committing against the Ukrainian people. It's abhorrent. It's abhorrent. So, Joe, there's no doubt war crimes have, be, have yes. been committed. What, you know, what are the consequences, possible consequences for yeah. that? Well, you know, it's very rare for a country that's committing genocide to announce it's committing genocide. But that is essentially what Putin announced a year ago when he gave the justification for his war with Ukraine. He wanted to eliminate Ukraine as a nation, which he said didn't really exist as a nation. And so and that was his goal. That this was one one na- one people. Ukrainians were the same as Russians. It was an accident of history that this was a, an independent nation. Completely false, by the way. And so we were going to correct that that historical um, mis- mistake. And he's gone about methodically in in committing a, uh, the the crimes of that characterized a genocidal campaign. So it's not just the uh, the idea, it's not just killing people, it's destroying cultural institutions, it's smashing museums, it's stealing art, it's it's, it's instituting rape as a, a policy of war, it's torture, it's and and as you as President Biden mentioned, it's stealing children. Mm. You know, it's it's tens of thousands, by some estimates, hundreds of thousands of children have been uh, taken from Ukraine and brought into Russia and put up for adoption or been brought into these camps, these re-education camps where they're being taught to be Russian. You know, that and that is officially a, a, a genocidal crime is obliterating a person or person's national identity. And that's what they're doing with these these Ukrainian children. And by declaring that Russia was guilty of wars of crimes against humanity, he's subjecting individuals in the Russian leadership to possible trial um, um, or, or, or sanctions by the United States, by the United Nations. We, you know, we don't recognize the International Criminal Court, unfortunately, because we're afraid that U.S. officials would be brought <laughs> right. up on these channels, on these charges. Mm-hmm. But, this, but other countries could now bring up Russian officials for, for crimes against, against humanity, for, for genocide. So we're, this is something that could play out for decades after the war itself actually ends. And Ukraine, right, today is keeping track of these, right, and the record of these. So Nensky talks about it all the time. Yeah, There are thousands of lawyers and legal workers, and some of my friends are involved in this, volunteers from other countries, going and documenting each charge, each murder, each rape, each torture. Who did this? Where did you do it? You've seen some excellent reporting from the New York Times who has photographic evidence mm-hmm. yep. Russians and have identified the Russians involved. So yes, this is a quite a serious effort. And there have been some trials held of, of Russian soldiers captured in the war uh, inside Ukraine, who, and they've been convicted of, um, of war crimes. So President Biden, as we've talked, Joe, has uh, certainly succeeded in unifying Western Europe uh, behind uh, uh, joining the United States in support for Ukraine. Uh, maybe he hasn't totally unified the political front here at home, or maybe Republicans can't make up their mind what they want to do about Ukraine. Uh, let's get into that after a short break here on the uh, on the Bill Press Pod, and then we'll be right back. And today's podcast with Joe Cirincioni, very fittingly, uh, we bring you back to ask your support 
and your attention to the great work of Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen. They've served over one million hot meals so far in Turkey and Syria post the earthquake, and they are still, one year later, serving hundreds of thousands of meals every day in Ukraine and in Poland to refugees from Ukraine. What a great organization doing the Lord's work around the world. Uh, They deserve all the support we can give them. So please join me in going to their website for the World Central Kitchen, wck.org, simply wck.org, and send them all the help you can. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on today's Bill Press Pod uh, with our guest, Joe Cirincioni, national security analyst, a uh, good friend of the uh, Bill Press Pod. And he's been our he's been our go-to guy on the war in Ukraine for a year now since it started, and also former head of the uh, Plowshares Fund. Uh, so, Joe, you, we hear different words from the Republican Party on Ukraine. Mitch McConnell said it's the most important thing going on right now. We have to stand totally behind Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy says, uh-uh, no blank check for Ukraine. Uh, and some Republicans, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are even uh, voicing support for Putin. What's going on? Yeah, um, in the the MAGA movement, y- you see a real pro-Putin wing. Jesus. And it's very, it's very similar. And you know, Liz Cheney, for example, has called them out on this, on on, on the pro-Putin wing, and with, you know, it's part of the the historic right-wing fascination with autocratic leaders, with strong masculine leaders. You know, we saw some of this in the 1930s when you had American politicians admiring and backing and promoting Hitler in the 1930s, and and you and you see some of that now. And this is particularly true of some of the MAGA Republicans who see in Putin an effort against wokeism, 
and Putin fans this. Putin makes yeah. comments like this all the time about yeah. the erasing of genders in the West, for example, another MAGA talking mm-hmm. point. And they identify with this. So it's 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 not you know just uh, a desire to bring America home, and you see that among the left sometimes. We've been too involved in, in foreign adventures. We've been too militarized in our national security policies. Bring us home. This is is actually pro-Putin. They would rather see a strong Putin or a Viktor Orban or a Bolsonaro. I mean, these are their, their people they identify with because they would like a government like that here, one without judicial restraints, without a free press, with you know a, a one-party rule, mm. and so the, 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 it's really frightening to see American politicians actually uh, n- not just promoting policies that would cut U.S. aid for Ukraine, which Matt Gates, for example, has introduced a bill like that with eleven co-sponsors in the House, but to but to see them praising Putin and and favorably comparing the Russian army, the strong Russian army, against comparing it to what they consider the the weakness of the woke American army. Is it also, is part of it also that uh, this um, is just a way of undercutting Joe Biden that, uh, you know, uh, if Biden, if it makes Biden, if this makes Biden look good, then they're against it. Oh, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. But I think there's a deeper ideological uh-huh. reason here. It's not just political opportunism, but it's also political opportunism. Right. Now, uh, in a related issue, when uh, f- when he marked the first anniversary uh, of the war, Putin says, oh, and by the way, yeah, we're going to continue to fight there. We're winning. We might even use nuclear weapons. And by the way, uh, we're going to get out of the New START treaty, the last remaining arms control treaty, I believe, Joe, uh, yes. with the United between the United States and the former Soviet Union and Russia, um, what impact does this have on, you know, nuclear proliferation, nuclear weapons in general? Well, there's this is a twin threat, and and one of them, the first threat is that it continues to weaken the nuclear guardrails. It weakens the fabric of nuclear restraint that has been constructed over fifty years by. Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, to try to rein in the armed race. And it's effectively reduced the stockpiles, made us somewhat safer, although as long as nuclear weapons exist, you're never really safe. Uh, And when Trump was president, Putin and Trump cooperated to tear down two other pillars, the International uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, which allowed, which banned these weapons of certain ranges in Europe, the Open Skies Treaty, which allowed for airplane overflights over the military um, bases of, of each side. They tore those down. And the last one left, as you say, the last treaty standing is the New START Treaty. He, he, what he, Putin said was he was going to suspend mm. his cooperation with certain aspects of the treaty, the inspections, the meetings, the data exchanges. There's no real allowance for suspension, either you're in or you're out. So the yeah. U.S. says this is a major violation of the treaty and the right. But there's been no indication that it's resulted in any actual change in their nuclear posture. He hasn't said he was going to exceed the limits. He's he's not, he doesn't have uh, major new programs that could actually suddenly increase the Russian stockpile. He's got plenty of weapons that could destroy human civilization many times over, so the numbers don't really matter, even at the levels we're at. 
I think the, the bigger impact of this is not so much what it does physically for the nuclear security structure. It's what it does psychologically to the West. He's once again rattling the nuclear saber. He's reaching for some threat that he can raise again to some mm -hmm. effect to Western publics, to the global South, to say, if the West continues to aid Ukraine, this is going to lead to nuclear war. You better quit now. And that's yeah. what his New START bluster was all about. When does New START expire? 2026. And there's no, there's no effort, there's no provision for extending it. So you either have to negotiate a brand new treaty or it just dies. And if it does expire, that, does that mean we're just back in the old Cold War nuclear arms race? Y yes. And we've been heading in that direction anyway. And, and this is the last remaining treaty that limits uh, nuclear arms. Remember, this started with Richard Nixon back in 1972 with the, the the SALT Treaty that limited weapons. Then Reagan came in with the START treaties that actually reduced weapons, and it worked. We went we went from a world with 60,000 nuclear weapons, mostly held by the United States and Russia, down to where we have just about a little under 13,000 now, again, mostly held by the U.S. and Russia. But that process has stopped. There's been no negotiations for, let's see, 13 years now. And if this treaty expires, that will have to go back to square one and start all over again. Just to be clear, 13,000 is still enough to destroy the planet, right? Oh, many times. Well, the right. planet will be fine. Human oh. beings, not so much. <laughs> Got it. So when you add all of this up, uh, you know, Ukraine and everything else going on, does this mean that as we move into the next presidential campaign, uh, that foreign policy may once again it hasn't been for a while. May once again be a major issue, defining issue in the next presidential election, do you think? As you know, foreign policy rarely plays yeah, the right. dominant role, right? It's it's always other things, um, whether it's taxes or race relations or, you know. Abortion or whatever. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But in this case, uh, I think foreign policy could be front and center. If it's Trump or DeSantis that Biden is facing, they are both pro-Putin, you know. They are both mm -hmm. for disengagement, and and Biden is perhaps the most effective American leader that we've seen in, in many many years, leading a resurgence of American leadership in the global national security architecture. So you couldn't ask for a sharper contrast on foreign policy. Um, uh, I, I got to think that it, in, we, we might see uh, the exception to the usual presidential race and that foreign policy will make a big difference in voters' decisions when they go into that, that booth. And of course, that, that assumes or presumes that Americans will care about it, right? Which I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll care about it. Like, do you want to see the U.S. continue to support Ukraine? I think hopefully we're looking at the question of rebuilding Ukraine. You know, at that point, that the Ukrainians will have won the war by 2024, but uh, but there, there was there will undoubtedly still be crises brewing with mm -hmm. Russia, with China, with Iran in the Middle East. So um, uh, uh, there are so many hotspots around the world, Joe. We could talk about for hours, but I do want to ask you about one more before we let you go, and that is we see these massive protests. Uh, in Israel now against what is called the Supreme Court override bill that uh, the, 
the right-wing government between Netanyahu has put together uh, is pushing. It's now passed, I think, one test. Maybe it has a couple more to go. Um, but um, this, I mean, this is a serious threat, not beyond the borders of Israel. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. How, how do you read it? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Israel is is perhaps in the most internal turmoil that I've ever seen. This is its own, you know, Zeitenwunder, its own turning point. There have been tens of thousands of people in the streets of Tel Aviv for weeks now protesting this bill because it, it would turn Israel away from democracy. You know, what they, what they want is to allow the, the, the Knesset, the legislature, to make its own rules that cannot be overturned by an independent judiciary. To, uh, to to allow the political leaders of the Knesset to appoint the judges directly mm-hmm. and, and to eliminate the independent judiciary. That is the, one of the hallmarks of democracy, and, the, and people are very afraid of what that means. For example, they could declare, they could uh, ban newspapers, for example. They could ban, they could prohibit op- opposition politicians from talking, anything they wanted to do, and there'd be no judicial appeal that was allowed because under this reform, the, the Knesset could just by simple majority vote overturn any judicial uh, finding. And this comes at a time where there is e- increasing conflict with the Palestinians. Just to, yesterday, there was a, a gang of settlers um, laid siege to an Arab village outside Nablus, and for hours were burning homes, and and uh, and and sh- killed one Palestinian there in retaliation for a Palestinian attack that had killed two uh, young is brothers, two Israeli settlers on the road outside Nablus two days ago, which was itself a response to the Israeli raid on Nablus that killed eleven Palestinians earlier. Uh, last week. And you see these tensions, you know, piling up. There's, again, demonstrations at Tel Aviv about what the Israeli military is doing in the West Bank. There was a U.S. effort to try to cool things off. They convened a a meeting in Aqaba, Mm -hmm. Jordan, uh, where there was going to be some Israeli officials said, "Okay, we're going to freeze the settlements for a while. Let's try to cool things off. The, the, The um, a far-right finance minister and the national security administer, uh, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, said, oh, no, we're not. Oh. You know, there is, there's a question of whether Bibi Netanyahu is actually in control of his own government at this point. I encourage your listeners to go look up Haaretz. Go look at the, the newspaper, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, to get a sense of the turmoil that Israel's in right now, it's spiraling up towards a, 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 a greater and greater conflict, and there's no responsible leader in the government that's actually trying to cool things down. So the American um, sort of uh, argument, right, that we stand strongly behind Israel because it's the only democracy in the Middle East, uh, it, it's in question now, or could be in question. Yes. Yes, it could be. And by Israelis themselves, Israelis yeah. themselves are saying this, you, we're going to, we will not be a democracy anymore. You, this is one last thing. You're seeing some of the reserve officers in the Air Force say that they're not going to report for duty because if this bill passes, they can no, Israel can no longer say that, say that there's an appropriate judicial mechanism for um, deciding uh, uh, it, it, 
military maneuvers that might be considered war crimes, and that would subject them to international war crimes prosecution. And that's why they don't want to participate in and fulfill their reserve obligations as officers in the Air Force. So this gets very serious very quickly. Right. So uh, let me bring it back home one more time. And the link is, uh, I just read this morning uh, in reviewing President Carter's record. And of course, oh, there's been yeah. a lot of reappraisal and another second look at Jimmy Carter since it was announced last week that he's really in his last days and he's chosen to forgo any more medical treatment and enter yeah. uh, hospice treatment. But that Jimmy Carter was the first president to uh, warn Israel that and urge them to stop building these settlements in the, in the West Bank because it basically would be an obstruction to uh, any lasting settlement between um, the Palestinian Authority and and uh, and Israel. Um, overall, either foreign policy or domestic policy, um, it's worth taking a second look at Jimmy Carter. Joe, would you agree? And that history makes him look better than we thought at the time. Yes, I do agree. I think you're onto something, Bill. You know, the standard rap on Jimmy Carter was that he was a mediocre president that became America's favorite ex-president right. because of the clear humanity and goodness that he's demonstrated in the years. But when you look at his foreign policy re record, instead of thinking about the Iran hostage situation, you know, for example, think you, you start going down his achievements in four years, they're very impressive, starting with Camp David, which is still... Mm the only lasting peace agreement that any U.S. president has been able to broker in, in the Middle East. He normalized uh, relations with China, a process begun by Richard Nixon, but he finalized it and, and formalized it. He, gave, he, he got rid of the embarrassing colonial legacy of U.S. possession of the Panama Canal, despite ferocious right-wing opposition. Do you miss the Panama Canal? You know, but he did that, which was extremely important for our relations in, in Latin America. He was one of the first presidents to push to elevate democracy and, and human rights as a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy. And he continued that later on with his involvement with the NDI, the National Democratic Institute. He promoted energy independence and, and green technologies way before most other people were yeah. thinking about this. Remember the solar panels on the- Solar on panels the on, the, on the White House roof. Yeah, right. and, and more and more. So I, I think- you know, we are going to revisit this and we'll see some of those overlooked achievements in a new light and reevaluate his his four years as, as president. And the first president to warn about the dangers of climate change. Right? Yeah. So in many ways, he was ahead of his time. You know. Yes, I, I think he was. He was the first president to visit sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and and helped the transition of power from the white minority government in Rhodesia to the uh, black majority government of, of Zimbabwe. You know, things like that, where he personally put his reputation on the line and served as a, a, a broker and a peacemaker. Uh, Joe Sirincioni, thank you for being such a good friend. Thank you for your time today. I hope we don't have to talk to you a year from now, because I hope this war in Ukraine <laughs> somehow will be behind us. But we can still talk about other things and other foreign policy issues and domestic issues as well. Um, you're the best. Joe Sirincioni, thank you, my friend. How can people follow you? Uh, when well, you're not on the I, Bill Press pod. As long as there's a Twitter, I still have a Twitter account, at <laughs> Cerencioni. 
Uh, and that's probably the best way to stay in, in touch with me. And uh, yeah, that's thank you very much, Bill, for ta- have taken the time to talk about these issues and to have me on again. You'll have your Twitter account until Elon Musk <laughs> pulls <laughs> the plug. Discovers <laughs> you. Exactly. All right. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Cirincione, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back again Friday with our Reporters Roundtable, bringing you up to date and getting their perspective on all the news of the week from our nation's capital. Have a great week. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for the Roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.